0: I'm going to be in Jonah chapter 1, verse number 4, and let's read together. I'll read out loud, and if you uh, want to, you can look up on the screen. Jonah 1, 4. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners, those are the guys that are in the boat with Jonah. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Dun, 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 and the lot fell on Jonah. Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. That's the way it feels when I read that. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So let's remember something right off the bat. This really happened. This is not a Bible story. It is an inspired scriptural record of what occurred on a boat many, many centuries ago with a renegade prophet named Jonah who was running away from his assignment from the Lord. This really happened. Real wind, real boat, real uh, sailors, real waves, real judgment. Correction would be the better word, but the Lord was going after Jonah not to punish him as a rebel, but to restore him as a son. And it is imperative on us that we learn to tell the difference and, and always remember that God does not discipline us um, in order to get some kind of satisfaction out of some punitive measure. That's, that's not his heart to us, his children. The wrath of God does not abide on us. But nor is it true... To um, characterize God as one who just kind of, um, you know, ignores sin or, you know, winks at it or just kind of overlooks it. He's holy. We need to remember that in our day. He's holy. And contrary to a lot of popular hyper-grace theology, he's not always happy in the sense of pleased with what he sees going on. But he always acts in love if you're his child i want you to know this right now no matter what you've done what your circumstances are what you perceive him doing he is operating on your behalf in a love that is immeasurable sometimes it is hard to find in the sense of uh feeling it Sometimes we can't make sense of it because what we see in front of us seems to run contrary to the idea that he loves us because we have equated love with this definition that if you love me, you're going to make me feel good about me. That's the modern day definition of love. If you truly love me, your highest priority for me is going to be my ease and my comfort. And that's a faulty definition of love. The biblical definition of love, agape, is this, that God is seeking the highest good of the object of his love. And Sometimes the highest good involves correction, and that's where Jonah was right now. And so let's take a look at it. I've only got three points tonight, but it'll probably take me the normal amount of time. So let's get into it. Let me say this, uh, right after service tonight for the New Bridge family, um, there is going to be in the annual budget meeting. Woo! right but we're going to vote to approve on the 2018 budget we've been doing it by faith so that'll be right after um, in room 14 down the hall if you want to um, to attend that let's get into the word let's start with a very clear point verses four five and six and this is what i call the intentional discipline of a loving father this is not rocket science it's plain as day but let's walk through all of these verses first of all god initiates some turbulence for jonah so remember this that the same god who can calm the storm in the gospels is the god who sends the storm in the book of jonah and in verse 4 it says this the lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up remember last time jonah is supposed to be going northwest And he spoke, me, northeast to Nineveh from his homeland. And instead he goes due west on a boat to get out of Dodge, to run away from his assignment, run away from the Lord. And so he gets on this boat, and what he actually is comprehending and thinking in his mind is that, man, if I just run hard and fast, I can get away from God. Problem is is God's on the boat. God's over the boat, God's under the boat, God's, you're just not going to run and hide. But Jonah gets on it, and so what does the Lord do? The Lord wants his son back in his will, and so the Lord goes to extreme measures and he sends some turbulence. The Hebrew is interesting when it talks about he hurls the wind and hurls the storm upon the sea. It is intense. It's, it's not just that the picture is that, that almighty God is just pouring it out and pouring it out and pouring it out. And again, he's not doing this punitively. He's not trying to get some thrill out of punishing Jonah. He's trying to make it impossible for Jonah to run any further out of his will. And so he works through these circumstances. Down in verse 5, Jonah is, we're seeing this, Jonah will see it later, but Jonah's sin is now impacting those around him. This is a tough one for us because our lives are interconnected. And our sin is never isolated. It's, it's amazing. Well, let me read the verse and, and give you the picture of it in verse 5. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his gods. So these are pagans. They're not justified. They're not redeemed. They all have their own different gods. And so they're all calling out to gods that don't exist. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Now, just very quickly. This isn't Gilligan on this boat, okay? These guys are intense seafaring men. And, And they're pagans, and they're probably everything you might picture about guys on the sea. Picture the Pirates of the Caribbean characters. And they're on that boat, and they're there with Jonah, and they're panicking. They're panicking. They're terrified. In all of their years of sailing, they've never encountered a Yahweh storm. And it's not just the weather patterns, and it's not just the winds, and it's not just the currents and the water temperature. This is God who controls uh, the the weather, and he is using the weather to intensify his commitment to Jonah. But these guys have never seen anything like that. And so they're, they're, they're literally flipping out. They're freaking out on the boat. They're panicking. They are now taking all of that cargo for which they are accountable. Their job is to transport cargo on ships to go from one place to another. They are now throwing it all into the sea in hopes that the boat would rise up a little bit higher instead of going lower into the waves. But there's nothing they can do. They don't even understand at this moment that they're fighting against God who is fighting for Jonah. And so what's amazing to me, just a quick snapshot on this, and this is stuff that we need to recognize before we give in to temptation, before we say something that we know we shouldn't regret. What am I talking about? We need to recognize that our sin affects others. And in this case, Jonah's private decision to run out of the will of God, which you know how it is. Well, I'm not hurting anybody but me, but actually you kind of are. And so Jonah's on the boat, and these guys are now losing their commerce and their cargo. And it's interesting to me, their desperation, that, that all of these men are crying out to, to their individual gods that, that don't exist anywhere except in the demonic realm or in their minds. And, and, and Jonah's about to present them to who his God is, but, but the, the reality is, is that Jonah is entering into that process where not only is he reaping what he sowed, but so are the people that are doing life with him in that moment. Verse 6, but look at this guy. This is amazing to me. This false sense of peace finds Jonah. Verse 6, Jonah had gone down in the inner part of the ship and was fast asleep. And the captain comes to him and says, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise! you call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. This is incredible to me. Um, I've encountered this so many times. This, a matter of fact, it seems like I've always got at least one person in my life where I'm seeing this play out. And it's the idea that you can convince yourself Even as you are objectively moving out of the will of God, you're entering into disobedience. You're doing things, saying things, living in a way that is contrary to what the Bible reveals. But I've heard this from people. Well, I hear what you're saying, Jeff, but you know what? I've just got such peace about it. I've, just got, I've got peace about this. I, I, I feel happy. If it was wrong, I'm sure I would feel terrible. Well, listen, Jonah couldn't be more out of the will of the Lord, and he had enough peace to go lay down in the bottom of the boat in the midst of the most intense storm, and he's, you know, sawing logs. He's, he's, he's sleeping down there. Um, I, I love having a sense of peace. Uh, it's, it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Um, And so, as we are abiding in Christ and walking with Christ, we should anticipate that we would experience measures of peace. But I I want you to know, my sense of peace, whether it's high or low, I've learned not to allow that to be the dictator of of where I think I am with God. Because there's a lot of things that can heighten peace and give you, like Jonah, a false sense of peace. And there are other things that can lessen your sense of peace, a spirit of fear come on you. And and the fact of the matter is you may not feel it in that moment, like you have the peace of God, but in actuality, if you're abiding in his will, you still have that peace. You're just not experiencing the sense of it. Jonah was the opposite way. He was experiencing a sense of peace that he wasn't entitled to because he's out of the will of the Lord. And so one of the things that we want to do is we want to love each other enough to, when we see a brother or a sister, a friend, We want to love them. We want to to display the father heart of God. We want to be like God in this. We want to be able to lovingly say to them, hey, I want to tell you this is happening in your life, and because I love you, I'm going to to gently confront you on this. And and when they respond, I've got peace on it. Listen, I can't tell you how many times I've said, just waiting for them to give me, I've got peace, though. I'm just like, one, two, three. Jonah had enough peace to lay down in the bottom of the boat during the worst storm in his life as he's moving out of the will of God. He had enough peace. Was he in the will of God? I've learned to just use that. Why? Because it's right there. Uh, our, Our sense of peace may be a faulty barometer about where we are with the Lord. And so this had found Jonah. So the father's moving. He's sending this intense storm, chaos, Is just going on all around it the captain comes down and he says wake up do you have a God cuz I'm calling to my God and he is not answering he's calling to his God no answer they're all calling to their gods we got nothing sir do you have a God you can call on and what's amazing is the only guy on the boat who has the God is the guy for whom the storm has come upon all these others. Isn't it interesting, by the way, before I move on, that um, storms have a way of awakening our non-believing friends to the reality that they need some help outside of themselves. I I love that. Listen, don't waste a good implosion in in, in a non-believing friend's life. I'm I'm not even being flippant. What I'm saying is if you've got an unbeliever and something bottoms out and they're experiencing that, that place, we all go through that, believers and unbelievers alike, where circumstances... It is an opportune time not to bullseye them for the gospel, but in a sense of revealing truth and love and coming alongside of them and just being, being an, a representative of the gospel and, and who Jesus is and meeting them in that. Don't avoid it. Don't give them the churchy answers and be willing to, to enter into that because it's in those moments like that where they don't know how to find God, but they get all of a the sudden they get religious or superstitious. And every now and then, one of them might say, hey, I know you're the Christian at work, and I'm sorry for the things I've said and done over the years, but you know, this is happening in my life. You got any wisdom for me? Do you, what do you Christians believe? Um, I say that because um, that was part of the way I was one to the Lord. I was one to the Lord by my boss, who um, I mocked as a Christian. I laughed at. I argued with. But when I hit my rock bottom, he's the first guy I went to because he was consistent. And when I needed the answer, he was the one. It was as if I was coming in and saying, can you tell me what the God will do now that I've found this place? And my friend Scott, of course, won me to Christ through those, through those bottoming out seasons. Go down with me into verses 7 through 10. This is the hard part. You've had to do this. And you may have to do it again. I just hope it's not on the grand scale that Jonah is walking out in front of us right here. But this is the painful process of acknowledging our sin. Um, When we sin, we are to confess that sin. We are to forsake that sin. A lot of the times, it's just between you and the Lord. Jonah didn't have that luxury because Jonah's sin was about to be made public. And um, Jonah had to go through a public um, walking out of this. So it's a little... It's a little, it digs a little bit, but let's look at it. Um, I'm going to call verses 7 and 8 the revealing of buried secrets. The mariners said to one another, the, the sea guys, they said, let's cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they're casting lots and that's, let's just call it rolling the dice. It's something similar to that. And the lot fell on Jonah and they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And then the interrogation begins. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Now, let me just give you this. This This is both, it is grace and it is mercy because remember, you've got to remember why is God doing this? He's not trying to shame and humiliate Jonah for the purpose of shaming and humiliating Jonah. He's trying to win Jonah back. He's trying to restore Jonah. He's actually going after Jonah in mercy and grace, compassion and love. But anybody that's ever raised a child knows that there are times where, in love, you have to you have to deal with them strongly, yes. and it doesn't feel like love to the child. But you know that you are you see the big picture as the parent, and you know why you're in, you're employing discipline in those moments. And so, what is going on here? I, it's just amazing that literally god tells on jonah right here god god just says to a bunch of pagans it's him how does he do it well they're rolling the the dice and listen their pagan gods weren't exposing jonah it's god god in his sovereignty whether or not he he he, you know he's he's not necessarily in fellowship with these pagan guys but he's going to use their superstitious rolling of the dice he's like might as well use it it's jonah and so God exposes Jonah right there. And again, that's sometimes part of the process. Do you know how easy it is to delay repentance when it's only you and God know that know about what's going on? Yes. And, and the, something happens when somebody you know says, Hey, this isn't right, or you said this, or you did this, or this is going on with you. And all of a sudden, you, the illusion that things are okay is shattered. So Jonah's now having to look a bunch of rough and gruff pagans in the eye who don't even know Yahweh, and, and Yahweh's saying, fellas, it's him. And now Jonah can't hide anymore. That, by the way, that's mercy. It's the best thing that could have happened to Jonah. The, the gentle nudge of God, the gentle tug of God on our hearts, if we harden our hearts, that gentle tug must become a violent shaking. And I, sometimes the Lord is long-suffering. Sometimes he's not. Sometimes he's saying, oh, no, 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 no. To whom much is given, much is required. And my daughter, you know better. And so he, he, some of us, he'll lengthen the leash, you know, he'll let us walk a little further away than, than he will others. And the key is this, um, it's, it's just beneath all of us as believers, as followers of Jesus, as recipients of grace, it's beneath us to try to find out how long and how far we can walk apart from him. That's not the heart, that's not the Holy Spirit in us, that's flesh. Are the enemy. And so Jonah gets exposed, and it's as if the Lord's saying, You have sailed far enough, son. I'm going to be bringing you back through the first amphibian landing ever in the history <laughs> as that whale's going to spit him out. So, verse number nine this is crucial. And this is the wake up call. This is the revealing of our true identity. So he's exposed, he can't hide anymore. They've asked him, who are you? What's your job? Where do you come from? Whose people? And all of a sudden, Jonah gets reconnected with, this is who I am. And he says it. He says to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear Yahweh, the personal name of God, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So in a crystallized moment, when Jonah's sin is exposed, when he knows he can't hide anymore, the, the question, it's just like Adam in the garden. You know, Adam was asked, where are you? Not because God didn't know where Adam was, but in essence, he's saying, where are you with me, Adam? And um, you've got, uh, you know, um, Jacob um, standing before um, uh, Abraham, uh, pardon me, Isaac. And, and, and the question is, the, the voice is Jacob's, but the feel is Esau's. Who who are you? And then later Jacob will wrestle with the angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord asks him, who are you? What is your name? God brings us to these moments where we have to get realigned with our identity. And so repentance, true repentance, always brings you back beyond what you've done to who you really are. So I am a child of God. And as a child of God, that's my identity. My identity is not husband, my identity is not father, my identity is not pastor. Those are roles that I have in life, but my identity is a son. I'm a son of God. And so Jonah is brought back to this place and he says, I'm a Hebrew. And Hebrews were the descendants of Abraham. They're people of the covenant. They're chosen race, they're royal priesthood. And, and, and he's, he's coming to grips with, I've been acting like one of these pagans. I've been living in rebellion against my Lord. He does say this. He says, I fear the Lord. And the little critic in me wants to say, no, you don't. Because if you really feared Yahweh, you wouldn't be on a boat heading you know, due west right now. But I actually believe that he's, he's at this point, it's probably more along the lines of, I am a Hebrew. And all my life, I have feared the Lord who created this very sea that is now stirred up against me. It's a recognition of, man, because when we walk in sin, and I'm, you know, I'm, I assume that we're not doing that, okay? But I'm also, I've been in this thing a while, both as a Christian and as a pastor, and I recognize that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and even those of us who are redeemed can be deceived by our own hearts, and we can spend seasons out of the will of God, and they're very difficult seasons. And so what has to happen is we have to come back, not to obeying the rules, that's religion. We have to come back and get centered in our identity, and our identity is established by what he did for us, not by what we're doing for him. So we come back and we say, I am a child of God. He is my king. He is my Lord. He's my savior. I'm empowered and indwelt by him, and I can do all those things that please him through his son who lives in me, why am I living like this? And so that's part of genuine repentance. Part of genuine repentance. It's like the, the demoniac in the Gadarene Tomb tombs where the Bible says that he comes out, he's full of demons. Jesus delivers them all the demons. And the man who was once running around naked and cutting himself and screaming and terrorizing the village, the Bible says when the villagers come up, he's sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Clothed and in his right mind. The prodigal son in the far country. Do you know what it says? Do you know what led to him going back home? It said, when he came to his senses, when he started remembering who his father was. And it started becoming again about identity, and he still struggled with it because he rehearsed the, I'm going to go home and I'm going to say, I'm not worthy to be your son, but I'm a, a please let me be a servant. And it, but it was enough for him in the far country. When he remembered who he was, that motivated him to start moving towards the father. As he drew near to the father, the father drew near to him, and he never even got to give a speech. Why? Because the father came at him and wrapped him up in a robe and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And he said, my son who was lost is now found. My son who was dead is now alive. And, and when, when he got reconnected to the source of his identity, um, he never went back to the far country. And so identity is a big part of it. And friends, sometimes we, we just have, instead of people who, let's just make it ministerial for a moment. When we're ministering to somebody, and they're off in sin. And sometimes you gotta be very stark and you gotta very very upfront. And you have to be truthful. We live in a very coddling, excuse me, coddling generation that wants to make sin less intense than it is, because we, we call that sensitivity. Be careful because you could be lying about the sin to that person all in the name of comfort. So let's not diminish sin, but at the same time, let's let's recognize that we are to go to them and we are to bring them back to a place of remembering who they are. You know, they, don't, they already know thou shalt not. That, listen, we may have to address that, but that, that's not the remedy. That may be part of the awakening that they need is saying, hey, look, you're actually violating the heart of God. You're actually acting against this one who loves you so much by these things you're doing. But, but ultimately, they don't need our lectures. They need us to come in and, and, and remind them of who they are and who he is to them. And, and, and it's so healthy. We've got to be wise about not prematurely doing this when we're helping somebody come out of sin, we don't want to prematurely put the balm on. Look, make sure they're aware of the, of the wound, the conviction, the stick, of, of the pinprick of, of, of conviction of the Holy Spirit before we start applying the salve and trying to make everything better. Um, somebody didn't like that. That was, wasn't in favor of that. Hey, uh, I, I, just let me say this before moving on i felt this when we were worshiping tonight and i gave that word and i don't know if it landed anywhere but um i really sensed almost as soon as i walked into the house tonight that that the god of all compassion was was so eager to welcome prodigals back tonight people that have wandered or were struggling in shame for previous years of wandering And I, i want you to know when you turned and you repented he forgave he chooses not to remember he restores and the only one who's shaming you is either your own flesh or it's the enemy working against you. And so I, wanna, I just want to emphasize this, that as a child of the father who sits at the table with the father, he delights in you. If you're repented, then there's nothing left to pay for. It's done. Don't waste another day with some self-imposed guilt that supposedly um, helps prove to God how sincerely sorry you are for what you once did. Listen, there's a joy in just walking away from it. My goodness, just walk away from it. It is nailed to the cross. It is never to be dealt with again. Walk away from it. Don't revisit it. You know, just let it be where it is and now walk in that newness of life. All right, getting down to verse number 10 here's the reality of the impact of our decisions. Verse 10, this is where it really hits home. The men were exceedingly afraid. These tough guys were really afraid. And they said to Jonah, what is this that you have done? Why did they ask that? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he told them. So he, he literally had to say to them, okay, guys, here's actually what's happening. Yahweh is my God, and he's the creator of all, including the the sea that we're on right now. And he's the one that's really sending the storm. And the reason why he's sending it is because he told me to go northeast. I went due west. I'm I'm actually a prophet. I've got an assignment. I just didn't want to do it, and I'll explain why later. And um, yeah, I'm kind of in rebellion against them. sorry. And the the men are like, we're about to die here. (laughs) What have you done? Have you ever had a moment where your actions, it's just amazing the deceitfulness of sin, as a biblical phrase, the exceeding deep deceitfulness of sin. It, it's amazing how um, just um, it calls to us, how tantalizing in the moment of temptation. That thing may be. And as soon as we give ourselves to it, the storm rolls in, the inner storm, the shame, the guilt, the regret, the the wounds. And then all of a sudden we have this wake up moment where we're like, oh, now I see it for what it was. uh, I've worked in church ministry for 20, this is my 21st year full-time, and uh, I have, the most painful moments I've had is sitting with people that have bottomed out and ruined their lives, and I've heard this more times than I can count. They would say something to the effect of, I just didn't see it. I didn't see it for what it was. I didn't see it. I didn't see it, and then after um, the harvest, the bad harvest has come in, and now they see it, but it's too late, so guys, one of the things is, is that when part of our resisting temptation and uh, I, I trained my kids from the time they were six, seven years old, we're talking about sin and t- it's not a sin to be tempted. It's not. It's not a sin to be tempted. You're going to be tempted. But in wisdom, trace it out in your mind to the end before you give yourself to it, you, you actually have to engage your mind, your spirit-controlled mind, and say, I need to follow this all the way through because right now, I want to I wanna go off on this person. I want to say this thing. Or I, I've got something on her and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell this sister about it. And just trace it out because the wages of every sin, sin never exists where it doesn't kill something. And so whether it's a, something as socially acceptable as gossip, which is, believe me, um, more churches have been wrecked by gossip than they have adultery. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's something like that, or if it's, you know, one of the nasty nine or the dirty dozen, and we, we categorize sin and we shouldn't. But ultimately, if, if we can come to the place where we know where our weakness is, trace it out. See the ugliness on the back end before you enter the front door on it. And Jonah didn't do that, and so he's in that place where probably most of us have been, that place of regret. He's saying, oh man, um, I've made a mess here, but Hallelujah. Ultimately, this is not really a big story about Jonah. This is a story about a a, a big and glorious and gracious and merciful God who is not intimidated by Jonah's failures. So let's get down to verses 11 through 17. We'll wind up tonight. So Jonah's caught. He's busted. He's exposed. Now they got to figure out what to do. And we're going to see from Jonah and these guys that he's with some common responses to correction from God. These are common responses. They're right here in the text, but I've also observed them in my life and in the lives of those that I've walked alongside. Here's the first response. I see this a lot in people. I call it self destructive fatalism. And it's a terrible response to God's correction in your life. They said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more, it was getting worse. So as they're freaking out and as Jonah's confessing, the storm's actually getting worse. Verse 12, he said to them, all right, here's the fatalism, self-destructive. Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, I'm not going to try to pretty this up. Jonah is literally saying, I want to die. He's expressing a kind of a passive-aggressive approach to suicide. It's death by mariner. He's, I mean... Jonah if he really wants to end this, Jonah can jump off the boat but he doesn't but it's this I've ruined everything all hope is lost my actions have hurt other people so I'm just gonna die and he's serious about it I mean he, he's lost hope he's fatalistic I've, I, listen, I want to tell you, I have been, and I'm going to weave some personal testimony in this, because all of us probably have little chapters in our life that are, are kind of written with regret. And so I don't want anybody leaving here feeling worse than them when they walked in. And so I want you to know, we, we, we probably all have places where we, we want to mulligan. We want to go back and do it over again. Um, but I know that I've been in seasons where I have, I've done things, both as a lost person, but even a couple as a Christian, where I just thought, what an incredible blunder, what a failure. I feel like a fool. I'm ashamed of what I said or what I did. Um, Lord, just take me out. And it, it's just fatalistic because what, what that says is, I've done something so bad that even God can't bring good out of it. And by the way, that, that, that self-destructive spirit... Um, never comes from the Lord. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so when we get like that, when we're losing hope, when we feel like we just need to punish ourselves, that's always either the flesh or demonic or a combo of the two. It's never the Lord. And what the Lord's always doing, and and listen, the hard part is, is it sometimes comes in seasons where he's disciplining us, so it almost feels like he's driving us to destruction. The enemy gets in there, man, and he starts messing with your head. The father's after you. you failed God. You're a terrible Christian. It's the wrath. It's the judgment. And it feels so heavy and intense, it's not the way he's operating with his children. It's just not the way he does. He disciplines us. He chastises us in love. He does it because he's wanting to bring us back into alignment with all that is good and right and holy and from him. And so, listen, some of us are stiff-necked and stubborn, hard-headed. Um, just because you're hard-headed doesn't mean you need to become hard-hearted. You know, God can work in a stubborn person's life whose heart isn't getting hard. But when, when we persist in a, a, a pattern of rebellion, our conscience can get seared, and we can risk that reprobation, and it's just with, at that point. And so, guys, what I'm saying is this. So Jonah just wanted these guys to throw him overboard so he he could die. And um, what's interesting is, we're going to see in a minute, that ultimately that's what they did. But God had this like really gigantic prehistoric kind of looking fish just circling under the boat in obedience to the Father. And so when Jonah jumps in, he thinks it's over. And by the way, my guess is that the mariners, the guys on the boat, one of two things, they ever never saw Jonah get rescued by the fish, or if they did see him get in the fish's mouth, they thought, ooh, that's even worse than drowning, you know? So they never, they they didn't have the book of Jonah. So in their minds, um, they just killed a guy. So let's see how they respond to that. So here's the second response uh, to correction from God. Just give me a few more moments fruitless attempts to avoid consequences. This is before they throw them over. So the men didn't initially like the idea of putting Jonah in the Mediterranean. So nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out. Now watch this. They're now calling out to Yahweh. They're using his name. So they're learning about Jonah's God. They, They called out to Yahweh, Yahweh. O oh God of Jonah, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, Yahweh, have done as it has pleased you. It's awesome that they're getting a little theological education here. Um, it's not quite the way we would do it today, but their, their first awareness of the personal God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the God of Jonah, the God of the Jews, their first awareness is he is almighty and he is holy. And now they've gone out from calling on generic Elohim. That's the, that's the Hebrew word for not only our God, but also when it's used with a little g, just paying gods. They've stopped calling on their little g gods and now they're saying, Yahweh, Yahweh. Yeah. And they're calling out to him. But what's interesting is they're trying in their own flesh to avoid the consequences on Jonah's behalf, they—they they really did. They tried unsuccessfully to help Jonah avoid what was due him. So they're rowing and they're rowing and they're rowing, and that's a picture of us trying to fix in the flesh what we—we we or somebody else did in the flesh. Listen, flesh doesn't fix flesh. Spirit fixes flesh. Spirit comes in and brings light and life to things that are dark and dead and so they're trying in the flesh and it just it's just a picture of of our own attempts to either avoid consequences or to help others avoid consequences when listen we've got to let god fully break those whom he is designed to break and moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas we don't like to see our kids or our grandkids go through stuff but listen i just want to say this in love you need to stay out of the way when God is correcting them because he actually has greater ownership of them than, than you do. You don't really have ownership of them. They're his. And so we we know this term in our culture and our generation, enabling. And sometimes we're like those mariners enabling Jonah. You know, just try and sometimes you just have to let them hit rock bottom or what do what I call here the aqua launch. Some, sometimes they, they have to go over, and, and if they don't, what's, what's crazy is you can manage some of the symptoms of what's going on, but the, if, until they reach that rock bottom and they meet God face-to-face in that moment, they're never going to get right with Him, and it's a real temptation as parents or grandparents or spouses or friends to kind of preserve circumstances and de- delay the inevitable all in the hopes that we can just kind of hold it together and we don't have to face that really drastic situation and so it's like death by paper cut it just takes a lot longer (laughs) and so verses 15 and 16 here's another response i'm almost done if you if if i've gone too long you need to leave you're not gonna hurt my feelings a sobering awakening to god's holy authority verses 15 and 16 so here it is this really happened so they picked up jonah and hurled him into the sea very interesting that that word hurled is used in the hebrew and in the english three times in these verses god hurled the storm down on them they hurled the cargo over the over the side of the boat now they're hurling jonah into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging then the men feared yahweh exceedingly by the way that's a really good thing they got a little taste of that whoa i've never seen my little g god do this before who is this God? And look what they did. They offered a sacrifice to, the, to Yahweh, and they made vows. That's pretty intense. And it's going to happen again in Nineveh. Sometimes the, the, uh, the word escapes me, but the intensity of God. There's a certain people type that don't respond to the mushy-gushy love you know, heart of God, father, heart of God, you know, the, the bridal paradigm, you know, sometimes some people just like, you know, whatever. But you, if you present them a God, a power and authority, and they can recognize their smallness, it can lead to repentance. And it's after that repentance that they get to be introduced into the, what I would call the, the, the easier parts, the softer parts of the heart of God. Um, you and I were like the hardheads that nobody was going to whisper me into the kingdom. You know, I, I wasn't going to get into the kingdom because I read the song of Solomon and just said, he loves me. Oh, he's my beloved. It just wasn't going to happen. I love the song of Solomon. And now that actually means something to me, but I was a hardhead who who probably needed, you know, the tablets of stone, you know, that's what, what awakened me. So for, for, these, for these guys on the boat, these hardened, tough leathernecks, they're they saw what God did when the storm ceased and, and it blew their minds. And so they offered up sacrifices to God. I mean, in some way, am I prepared to say they got saved or justified? No, but I'm going to tell you, they got woke. And, and all of a the sudden, they're like, uh, we need to find out more about the Yahweh. And at this moment, by the way, Jonah is in the water. And so Jonah thinks, I'm about to die. And the mariners think, we just killed a dude. And the fish is saying, it's go time. (laughs) And so I'll read that last verse. Um, It's an intentional appointment to be alone with God. That's what God wanted. God had just been wanting Jonah alone with him again. So he went to some extreme measures. And the Lord, Yahweh, appointed a great fish. It's his fish. It's his ocean. It's his prophet. He's not asking permission, and it swallowed up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So chapter one ends kind of intense, and that three days and that three nights just points us to another place in our Bibles where judgment had fallen upon the innocent one, the Son of God, Messiah, the Savior the bridegroom, and judgment fell upon him, and he went under the waters of judgment. And he was in the tomb for three days and three nights. And I'll go ahead and tell you a little bit about the story of Jonah. He gets out of the fish's belly, and Jesus would say, just as he was in for three days and three nights and came out, I'll go in the tomb three days and three nights, but I'll come out. And so Jesus comes out having sunk under the waters of judgment for the guilty and the vile, for the offenders, for the rebels, for me, for you. And he took it fully. He took the Father's full judgment for your and my transgression. He took it upon him and he drank the cup and he bore the wrath of the Father. He experienced an unfathomable forsaking from the Father in order that you and I would never be forsaken. And so, when we think of this judgment and this scary stuff, and maybe tonight you've had to kind of set you up to think about the seasons in your life you would have rather forgot about, this is what I want you to leave thinking about. There is therefore no condemnation. Now that came from God to you. Don't believe it because I said it. Believe it because he decreed it over his beloved. There really isn't any. You say, well, Jeff, but I still feel it. Well, um, repent of feeling in a way that is not in accordance with what God has said. Tell your feelings that they make a good caboose, but a terrible engine. Put your feelings in the back and let your faith drive that train of your life. And so tonight when we leave, and we're going to, I really am about to let you go. Tonight when we leave, this is is just really what I I I want you to get it, and I want you to rest in it. Jesus took it all off of you, child of God. If you've trusted Christ, if you in a moment of faith have said yes to his lordship, if you've turned everything you know about you over to everything you know about him, and you believe that his death was a sufficient payment for your transgressions, your sins, If you believe that he rose from the grave, then you have believed the two tenets of the gospel that are most important, that your judgment has been paid for, and that in that judgment, he brought triumph. He triumphed over your sin. Therefore, it's done with. God's not thinking about your transgression. Now, guilt and religion and the devil in your flesh may, may lie to you and say, oh, he's thinking about my sin. He's thinking about my sin. No, my friend, if you're walking with him, he, he's thinking only about the fellowship that he enjoys with you. If you're walking at a distance from him, he's not really thinking about your sin. He's thinking about your heart. He's thinking about his love for you, and he's going to come after you. He's not coming after you to stomp you, He's coming after you because your boat's sailing in the wrong direction, and he wants you to be in the place of his deepest abiding blessings. And so he's calling you home. So let's stand together for physically able. And I'm just going to pray, and we'll be dismissed. We'll meet back here, Lord willing, next Wednesday and go into the second chapter. Um, I'm just going to pronounce a couple of things. And then if you want to go to the uh, budget meeting, I've got to turn you loose. They're probably wondering, what's up? So Father, in the name of Jesus and by the authority of your word, by the decree from your heart that's all throughout the gospels and the epistles, I pronounce that we are accepted in the beloved, complete in him, that we are clean because we have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And because you have declared that there's no condemnation on us, we will not walk in shame. Keep us sensitive when we fail you so that we may immediately repent. And help us to remember that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, that we're not on probation, we're pardoned, we're forgiven, and we're free. That makes me right now, Father, want to draw so close to you and to rest in what you've done rather than live in regret for what I've done. So bless us now, Lord, with faith that behaves, that moves, and that rests. In Jesus' name, amen.